Welcome to NTESQ. Along with my co-host Reese Thomas, I'm Teresa Quinlan, and this podcast is all about challenging and exploding the status quo. Inviting our guests to help us think differently so we can start doing differently in our personal life and our professional life. And our guest today is Mark Crowley. He's a leadership speaker, consultant, and change agent for workplace engagement and culture, and he's the author of Lead from the Heart. Now, Mark's success comes from having a really profound understanding of what leadership practices truly move the needle and what inspires human beings to commit themselves to doing extraordinary work. And this is the knowledge he uses for his book called Lead from the Heart. In this conversation today, we're going to get past all of the accolades that Mark has been given for this tremendously powerful work, and we're going to dive into the essence of how do we lead from the heart. So welcome to TNT ESQ, Mark. It's great to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure. And it's very cool when, Teresa, you're in Toronto and Mm -hmm. Reese, you're in London and England and, you know, we're all together here. I just think that's fantastic. I'm still in awe of the technology that allows us to do this, you know. It's just pretty wonderful, especially when we're all sort of in our bunkers. Yeah, it's kind of amazing. I have this conversation with my son quite frequently. It's kind of amazing when you think about technology in and of itself and how it has this two sides to it where it can be used for so many amazing, great, wonderful things. Even 15 years ago, we wouldn't have had the potential to do really. And it can be used for some things here. Like, I wish it didn't have that impact or effect. Well, I mean, think about it. If, if this had happened, this whole COVID thing had happened even six, seven years ago, mm. we wouldn't have had Skype, we wouldn't have had FaceTime, we wouldn't really, Zoom has just sort of emerged. We're talking a lot about the heart here today, but mm. you know, the, the heart is what needs connection. When we feel lonely as human beings, it's the heart saying, get out there and go meet with people. And because we're all sort of alone, I mean that, you know? And so it's interesting because right now, what people are missing, they don't even understand it. There's just a loneliness. Even if you have your kids home from college or you've got your, you know, a spouse or a partner with you, you there's this, like, I, I miss people. I miss just being with people and talking to people. And we don't even realize how much we get from interactions with, you know, the mailman and the guy who delivers the paper and the people in the grocery store and all the things that we're not doing, you know, those feed us. And so we're really deficient. And so thank God for this technology because, you know, I mean, my, my wife's sister, they're having like, you know, every night of the week, it seems like they're having like a cocktail hour with friends and, you know, I'm not advising. I know. Right. It's like, that's just our little secret. Don't like <laughs> okay. I should be revealing that. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, but at least they're having their friends and staying connected. I mean, it's kind of you know, with a glass of wine or without, it's still a pretty mm-hmm. cool. Completely agree with you. Where did this sort of passion or obsession around like heart basedness? We're just gonna make up that word. Yeah. Where did that Where did that start from for you? Um, it's it's a it's a very big question, and every time I've a- been asked it, I answer it in a slightly different way. Um, and so I'm going to do that now because I just actually woke up yesterday with this like, how did I do this? Like, how did how is it possible? So. 
I hired a woman, her name is Cecilia. She's a very good friend of mine even now, but I hired her when she was in her early 20s. And then we worked together for 20 years. So I, I think I was 42, maybe 43 years old. And she said to me one day, you realize you manage people very differently than everyone else around here, don't you? And I think I was just beginning to realize this. I mean, it's astonishing to me that, you know, that I could have had my head down and just executing, executing and managing people in a way that drove phenomenal performance, regardless of where I went and what job people had, and, but without realizing what drove it. So I said, well, what do you mean? And she started to lay out sort of, you know, when you have somebody who's worked for you for 20 years, she knows you good and bad, right? And she started laying out these behaviors. And I started to realize that they had all been driven by an unconscious response to my upbringing. And I won't go into too much detail, but it was rather brutal. My mom died when I was very young. My father was actually a high performing executive, um, very high performing, except that as a human being, he was magnificently deficient and was determined to destroy my self-esteem. My, my really wanted to crush me as a person. And so he did a pretty good job of that emotionally and psychologically, just beating me down for my entire childhood. And then right after I graduated from high school, he kicked me out of the house. And I thought I was going to be, he had a lot of money, so I thought at least he's going to sponsor me to go to college. And instead, it was over in an instant. So no tuition, but also no food in the house and no place, no money for rent. And, and, and that was so destabilizing. And because he had told me that I would never, ever amount to anything, that I was going to be this colossal failure, I made this connection that if I didn't graduate from college, despite all the hardships, um, that ultimately what, would have, what that would have meant for me was that he was right. Mm -hmm. So because of that, I was just fiercely determined to do it. It took me almost six years to graduate from college. And really it took me a couple of years just to get stable, like just so that you, know, you can eat and know that you're not gonna be kicked out and that your car breaks down and you have a little money. And, but I never really had any degree of safety and sense of I'm, I'm okay here. And so um, I did graduate. And I, when I graduated, I actually graduated with honors and you know, I kind of proved to myself that, that I was resilient and smart person. But deep down here inside of me um, was still the same guy that I was, you know, that I was as a kid, that I just had this deep sense of lack of belief in myself and insecurity and lack of safety. And so um, I looked around at the people that I was graduating with and I realized, wow, what an advantage these guys had. Like if, if I had somebody who could have encouraged me and thoughtfully directed me and loved me and cared about me and, you know, congratulations on your test and your paper and all those kinds of things that I knew I would have been infinitely more successful in college, you know? Mm -hmm. So when I started managing people, I made a pivot that I wasn't conscious of until I was 42 or 43 years old, thanks to Cecilia, where I realized, oh my God, what I have done is basically given people who work for me everything that I always wanted and needed, but deep down believed that if I'd had that, that I would have been infinitely more successful.
So because of that, people like just like blossom, like no matter what, you know, I mean, even people that I had working for me who were like on the brink of failure, like they just weren't succeeding at all. You could see this, you know, this flowering, this flourishing that was happening. And you, you know, it's sort of weird that I didn't make the connection. It was like, why are you managing this way? All I was doing was seeing that I'm getting great results. So you, I just tended to just keep doing what I was doing, right? Mm -hmm. So long story short, in the process of her connecting me to my reality and understanding that as I started to reflect on people that I was working with, that nobody was managing this way, I started to refine it and test it and practice it more. And I never had any interest in writing a book or, or leaving that career. It was just so that I could get better at it. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately, I ended up leaving the organization that I was working for. The company basically failed. It was one of the largest financial institutions in America. It failed during the Great Recession. I stayed for a while, was repelled by the people and how they led their organization. And I left and I made a decision to write a book. And in that process, I realized that if you boil it all down, what I was doing was affecting the hearts of people. And I, when I had that epiphany, I literally went home at night and told my wife, I have wasted a year of my life because if you just mentioned heart in the context, like the environment that I had just come out of, which is financial services, they were like, you know, and frankly, when the book came out, there were people like, what happened to him? Did he have like a religious breakdown or, you know, seriously, right. was like yes. people just couldn't understand what the hell I was talking about mm -hmm. because I, they never looked under the hood. They never realized mm -hmm. what I'd been doing all along. And so she said to me, thank God, you know, this is like one of those times where I tumbled over and somebody puts me back up, you know, and it happened many times in this process. But she said, well, didn't you already prove it? Like, don't you already know that it's true? Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, yeah, I mean, you're, you're actually right. You know, I, you can't take, you can't challenge this. So let me see if I can find some evidence. So I met with world-class cardiologists who then introduced me to people who are doing the greatest amount of research on the intelligence of the heart. And what they basically said to me was, you figured out something that we're just figuring out in medical science, that the heart actually is a feeling sensing organ, that the heart is actually communicating nonstop 24 seven with the mind and that it's sending more signals to the brain than the other way around. And that our feelings are influencing our choices. So my thesis, to boil all this down, is that feelings and emotions drive human behavior. We think, I, I think therefore I am, but it's just simply not true. So we think we're gonna give people a rational argument. If you do this, our customers are gonna be 10% happier, or our engagement scores will go up from 65 to 66 and a half, and it means nothing to people. What matters is, how do you make them feel? So that's kind of, so when I called the book Lead from the Heart, it wasn't a metaphor. It's really understanding that if you can principally focus on how people are feeling, understanding that that translates into whether people are engaged or not, loyal or not, committed or not, highly productive or not, leading from the heart suddenly doesn't sound so soft after all. Mm -hmm. 100%, yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. So much there to sort of uh, dive into and unpack. But you know, a couple of things came up for me. I mean, one of them was, you know, 
your self-belief that, you know, if you'd had all these great things, you would have been even better. And I would counter that by saying, well, actually, it was because you didn't have all of those things that made you so great and made you be able to give that gift so freely, unconsciously, as it turns out, until you had this conversation with Cecilia, that was what was going to make the impact with all of the people you interacted with, not just in your work life, but I'm sure this filters out into all of your friendships, all of your family life and all of your personal experiences as well. All of that that you didn't have made you do all of this, which is now great. So second, I concur with, I really believe in that as well, about the heart being the one giving as giving more direction to the brain. And, and you know, I've, I've often said, you know, lead with the heart. And then it was only recently that I found out that same research, you know, heart math and things like that, that talk about the importance of the heart in regulating our, not just our emotions, but our feelings and our behaviors. I'm interested to know how, because I know it was a few years ago and, when you wrote the book, I think it's agreed that you were, you were certainly ahead of the curve. I'm wondering how you've noticed people of the curve has caught up to what you've done, or how have you, how has that curve shifted since, was it 2008, something like that, when you wrote the book? 2011. And the left time has passed. How has your initial thesis evolved? And, and if we can tie it into this current yeah, situation. Yeah, that's a fantastic question. So um, first, let me just comment on your first point, which is I have realized that I raised a son, a college graduate, you know, so he's done cooking, if you will. And I didn't ever want him to have the experience that I had. I, like, I don't look back on that and say, well, I, every child should have that because that'll give them great wisdom. I, you just don't do that to children. But I do, in a perverse, you know, an odd way, say that I wouldn't be who I am or we wouldn't even be talking about this had I not had that experience. So it's this double rub, you know. It's like you don't want it for anybody else, but I guess at this point now I'm grateful that I had it. I will say, though, that there's a legacy. It, it, it's still a thread in me. You always have that. So I, I think that makes me more empathetic. It makes me more heart open, but also it wasn't all that kind of an experience, you know. <laughs> but um, by the way, the HeartMath people, the one of the co-founders mentored me in writing the chapter on the heart. I got their research directly, and that was cutting edge at the time. A lot of people didn't believe it. Another interesting story is that when after the book came out and I was working with a speaking agent, she goes, I want you to work with this woman. She's a marketing person. She works with authors. She'll help because I, I didn't have a platform at that point. So nobody knew who I was. So here I am with a book and no platform. And so the speaking agent was saying, you really ought to get some marketing support, like get somebody to help you figure out what you're going to do. So I said, okay. So I wrote her a check for $10,000. So this was not a, this was not cheap advice. And uh, honestly, she basically gave me one sentence, one sentence of feedback that I paid $10,000 for. And I'm just going to quote her. So I want to make sure your audience knows I'm not making this up. This is what she said to me. She goes, Mark, I've read your book. I've read your articles. I know everything about what you're doing. And I just want to tell you, if you continue to use the expression, lead from the heart, you're going to fucking fail. Wow, that's serious. You know? Yeah. But it's important to your question, Reese, because basically what that meant was I saw the big picture of what she was saying. Like, I didn't ask her for the money back or, you know, what she was trying to say to me was the world isn't ready for what you're talking about here. Mm -hmm. 
And if you call your book or you start calling it killer engagement, people are much more on board with that than they would ever be with lead from the heart. So I had to make this decision. Am I the heart guy or am I the killer engagement guy? The killer engagement wasn't authentic, but not only that, I knew I had the science behind me. So I had to make a decision. Do I suffer for the next five, six years? I was thinking it was probably gonna be one, to be honest with you. I didn't think yeah. she was that far ahead, right? But I basically said, okay, am I gonna own this and be this Pied Piper for this message? Or am I gonna hide behind something that's easier that people could respond to? And you know what decision I, I ended up making. My speaking agent, uh, Teresa, is in Toronto, coincidentally, where you are. And he told me, he's told me this twice. People go, I'm really interested in having Mark Crowley come speak at our organization. And we're also looking at Mr. X or Miss X. But we really think we want Mark. And at the last minute, they go, eh, X, take Miss X or Mr. X. And he goes, you lose more deals than most people ever get. So what's the answer? The answer is people think, and he never used this expression, but basically what he was saying was, they're afraid you're gonna come out and sing Kumbaya. Can I have a hallelujah? You know, whatever their fears were, it was totally not based in any reality. And that hurt. So I, I feel like I've paid a price to carry this message. And I think the, as this thing has evolved, my first strategy was like, okay, if people think I'm crazy, I'm just gonna write articles. So I wrote 25 articles for Fast Company Magazine and many of them were like extremely well read, you know, all over the world. I thought, okay, that's gonna get people to drip, drip, drip. They're gonna go, eh, you know, guy's not a nut after all, right? <laughs> this is all kind of making sense. So then I thought, well, maybe they should hear my voice. So I started a podcast the common denominator of the articles in the podcast is that there's like this printing press of research that's coming out from all, all different places that are inherently validating everything that I've been saying for the last 10 years. And now I'm feeling very, very supported. And I think the key here is that the heart isn't the soft thing after all. We're going to get to a point where everybody understands it. I'm actually in a very odd way, very grateful for the COVID crisis because I think it's opening hearts. It's forcing organizations to really truly think about people in ways they've never done it before. And you can't go back to being self-serving leader after you've been caring about your people for months on, you know, when they're living at home. So this is the transformation. I didn't, I never understood how it was going to happen. I just knew that it would happen. So we've got this massive shift, like a tsunami that's, you know, completely changing the way we, we operate. And I think the message that I want to give to people is that this is not metaphorical. Mm -hmm. This isn't, this is real. You know, this is, this is about how we are hardwired as human beings to thrive or not thrive. By not having heart in leadership, if you look at the metrics, our leadership report card, we still know that more than half of Americans are unhappy going to work every day. This is pre-COVID and employee engagement hasn't meaningfully improved anywhere in the world over the last 15 years. So if we were to shift that and you get people to be feeling like their needs are being supported and valued, ultimately you're going to have more thriving people but also more thriving organizations. So we think it's one or the other, and it's simply not. There's something so awesome in being first. As a trailblazer, you always 
will incur what you're speaking about. You'll incur this element of, I don't think so. And you'll be the one to incur the naysayers. You'll be the one to incur the early adopters. You're the one, you're gonna get all of it. You'll get that spectrum. And this reminds me of when the chips are down, when hardship is upon us, we have the same sort of pendulum swing. It really does highlight perhaps two things. One, the ostrich syndrome and those people who continue to bury their heads in the sand and don't see that hardship has opportunity. And then two, the other side of the pendulum are all the individuals who are looking and going, but there are so many opportunities right now based in this hardship. It's highlighting, it's making things much more visible when suddenly stuff that we were taking for granted has been taken away. There's uh, an opportunity to look new fresh eyes differently and really find what matters most. So when you talk about leading from the heart, I'm interested in knowing um, your perspective on how hardship influences what we see or don't see when it comes to leading from the heart. Well, you make two interesting points. It isn't fun being first. I yeah. can tell you, you know, I'm so proud of the work. So proud, like, you know, I've been able to find the right people for articles and my podcast, especially people seeing the world from a different point of view. I'd say 95% of the people that I've had on the podcast have brought me information that just says, it's pretty much validates what you've been doing here. Mm -hmm. That's very satisfying. Based on my upbringing, which was, you know, sort of a gelatinous foundation at best, it's been hard. Do I keep going? You know, is the world ever going to come around to this? You have those doubts, like maybe I should just go back to work. I don't need to be this Pied Piper for this, but I think Ultimately, going back to what Reese was saying, this is why I'm here. This is why I had all that experience. I had to have 20 years of managing people to know that it worked and how it worked to be able to say, this is how you do it. This is not how you do it. That needed to be firmed up. And I, I needed my mom to die. I needed my father to be that person. I needed to be kicked out of the house and have all those experiences so that I could be that person. I really truly believe that's why I'm here. And that's what's kept me going. But you also said something that is really important, which is I barely had enough money to get through school. Let's say school cost $100,000. It wasn't as if somebody wrote me a check for $100,000 and said, make this last until you get through. I didn't have the money. But I was always trying to figure out how can I get it so that I can continue to do what I'm doing. That isn't a good feeling, right? It's a lack of safety. And so what I always wanted to do, also very much unconscious, is make people feel safe. Like I went out of my way. Like if, some, if I was unhappy with somebody, I would make sure that they knew it. And then I would tell people, you know, unless I'm telling you I'm happy, unhappy with you, I'm really happy with you. And no one ever went home on a Friday night and went, I don't know if my boss really cares about me or likes me or if I'm doing a good job. People knew where they stood because that was really important to me. So guess what? Where are we right now? People don't feel safe. They don't, I mean, their retirement money just got lopped off by a third. And, you know, they don't know if they're going to have a job when this is all said and done. They don't know how long this is going to go on. Can't even go to the grocery store without being afraid that you're going to get sick. People are washing their hands. My neighbors wearing masks and gloves everywhere I see them. And this is like this alternate universe that the, the predicate is we're not feeling safe. So if leaders can do things to say, we're going to be okay, 
And we're going to be honest with you. We'll tell you what's going on. We'll give you advance warning. We'll make sure you know. We're going to do everything we can right now to help you so that when we go back to work, you have been made to feel good during all of this. We'll never forget that. But that's a heart movement. That's a heart leadership orientation that's coming front and center. We've never, ever had that in history. I love that you mentioned safety because I, I was hoping it would come up because I know that you recently did a special podcast with the doyen of uh, psychological safety, Amy Edmondson, and uh, it's something that I'm really passionate about. And I, I read a book last year and it's one of the best books I read last year. But I'm interested to know how this safety translates into the current situation. And we've also been kind of speculating about what the future of work will look like with some of our recent guests because there have been, you know, tumultuous changes, the adoption of virtual working practice, the forced change to maybe a more hardship-led leadership style away from an old command and control hierarchical sort of structure, more collaborative, certainly. How do you think those two, the safety, the hardship, work together and what that will mean for the next stage of leadership? Well, it's a fantastic question. First of all, I had had Amy on the podcast before to speak about psychological safety. She calls it psychological safety because she's a business school professor, but it's psychological and emotional psychology. It's both. And so when we think about all the people that are depressed and lonely and anxious right now, it's not because their brains are telling them that. It's how we feel, how we are as people. If you remember, you know, Maslow's pyramid, safety is bottom line, food, water, shelter, and safety. And so when people aren't feeling safe, they're not thinking about, hey, how can I do a great job at work today? I'm really going to give a great customer service. That's not to say that they won't. That's just not where they're at. I'll give you an example. My son has, his wife is marketing director for a large real estate company in one of the most productive areas of Los Angeles, California. And of course, they're not doing a whole lot of marketing right now because you can't even show homes, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so there's no revenue coming in and they've got all these people. So they needed to make a decision. What are we going to do with these people? Like, are we just going to let them go? Are we going to lay them off and give them a, a, a package? What, what are we going to do? They actually had to let some people go just to survive. But what they did with her was they said, we're going to furlough you, which meant no pay. And it's indefinite until we can go back to work. Mm -hmm. But what we're going to do for you is we're going to pay for all of your health care for as long as it takes. So why is that important? They have baby twins and one of them is not breathing on her own. She's on oxygen. And so they've now been doing tests and it's very expensive. That company made a decision about her. We can't pay you but we're going to take care of you and your family because she's the one who carries the insurance for that family. Mm. That doesn't make you cry, like you just beautiful gesture. Mm -hmm. So it's thinking about your people and what can you do for each person that allows you to survive, but also make sure that they know that they're valued. She's disappointed because she would like to work. So there's a loss there. I said, what they did was they demonstrated how important you are to them. They furloughed you, so they want you back. That, they're telling you that. And by the way, she was paying half of the insurance premium every month, and they took over the whole thing. Now they can take care of their children. They have that safety. And I just think she will jump through hoops for this organization. 
when this is all said and done. So safety is a critical element and it's never going away because we need it. We need it psychologically and socially. People need to be able to speak up. They need to be able to be who they are, whatever that is. They need to be just like, I'm Mark Crowley. This is who I am. And that's true for you. That's true for you. And the more we give that to people, the more safe they feel, then they move up that pyramid to other areas. You mentioned that within companies, leaders have this capacity and have opportunities to be able to say, we're going to do everything for you. We're going to tell you what's going on. We're going to, we're going to, and maybe, but I'm going to use the word, but I don't like to use it very often. I'm going to use it here, but that's built on a foundation of trust, consistent deposits, consistent actions, creating the climate, which in which trust can live. What if a company or a leader hasn't been doing that so far? And, yes. now we enter, and now we enter hardship and all of a sudden they're supposed to and then their employees are supposed to believe them? Yeah, well, I mean, they're going to have a hard hurdle, right? I mean, mm. in, in some cases, I, I actually think and I'm pretty convinced that I sent a tweet out last week and basically asked, how many of you have in the last week noticed something that you took for granted that suddenly meant something to you? Birds chirping or the wind blowing how many of you have thought about changing your careers? I just said, raise your hand. And so what I got were all these, you know, hand emojis back to me, like 150 of them, which basically meant that people are saying, yeah, I'm using this time to think about whether I want to go back to work for that company and whether I want to work in that job. And specifically, do I want to work for my boss? This happened like in an instant, like musical chairs. If, you, if you've been operating without trust, if you have not created a trusting relationship with your people and the music stops as it did, people are gonna lock in where you are, which is, I can't trust a word this guy is saying. Conversely, if you have a trusting relationship and your boss is saying, we're gonna do everything we can to help you and take care of you during this, you know, you're not looking at him cynically like, yeah, right, I should get my resume up to date. People are going to relax. They're going to go, I believe that person because I already have that trusting relationship. Trust is the cornerstone of leadership. If you don't have trust, there's really nothing else you can do. So we're really talking about the same thing. It's safety. If I don't feel trust, I don't feel safe. So true. Yes, like a sort of reimagining about what safety means to you, the individual in the workplace or in the home or, you know, in social situations. Like you said, it's an expansion from just psychological to emotional to social to who knows what it will be uh, this time next week as long as we're all open to that and, and um, we, we had someone who came on recently and she was saying it's such an exciting time there's so much opportunity we've literally been given a free pass to experiment you know you're given you've been given permission to fail so why not take advantage of this time why not be creative why not try these things you've always thought about and never had the the time the audacity the you know the nerve I know different countries are doing different things, but some places even give you a bit of financial security saying, look, we're going to pay 80% of your, we'll furlough you and that sort of thing. And so you've got that financial security as well. So that financial safety, there you go, there's another one. What do you think the workplace is going to look like when we go back to this? This is something that is really important to me. I know you've been talking a lot about transformation in your tweets. You've said it a few times about, and we, well, there was one about the education system. I said that I tweeted about how that could be changed as well. There's opportunity for so much change and reimagining, maybe reimagining is the, the word. What do you think the greatest opportunity is? Hashtag not anymore. What, what's the one I mean, thing? I'll, I'll, you know, 
technology is obviously making it so that people we're proving to all of us, you know, there isn't anybody that's not going to be convinced when this is all said and done that people can work remotely. We're all doing it right now successfully and people are just going to get better at it. But it's very interesting that we know that it's actually only about 59% of people as of, you know, the most recent poll that I saw that want people want to do it most of the time or all the time. We're needing that connection. I think that what this is going to do, and this is, there is no normal to go back to. Mm-hmm. Whatever it was that we were doing, it cannot exist any longer. And so people were thinking about how is it that I want to work? You know, one of the other tweets was, I asked people specifically, you're missing a lot of stuff. You're missing your colleagues. You're missing going to the office, your routines. You're missing being able to go to the grocery store, all those things. But what's something that you're going to miss from this? There were like all these beautiful things, my having dinner and lunch with my children and being able to hear the birds chirping. I know that sounds ridiculous, but that like that's where people are right now. They're like, that matters to me. I want to be able to have that. That means that leaders are going to have to lean into giving people greater flexibility. I think that's going to be a big part of this. All idea of like, I got to go to my kids, um, you know, little league game, but I got all my work done boss and you know, I'll get in here early tomorrow and I'll make it up to you. And people don't want that anymore. People are like, you have to trust me that I'll keep up with my work, you know, that I'm going to do my job, but my kid is important to me. And I'm going to go to that recital and I don't want to have to beg and I don't want to have to justify it. Give me that flexibility because I'm worth it. That's what everybody is saying to themselves. If we go back and we start micromanaging, I know that's sort of over to the left side of this, but if we go back and start to treat people the way we used to, they have changed. And if we don't recognize this has profoundly changed people, you're going to have people going, I got to go. I can't stay here any longer. And they're going to go to the places where people figured this out. Here's, I think, one of the beautiful parts that you're speaking about is that a lot of those really negative leadership patterns and habits, you can't actually do them right now. Right. It's very difficult to micromanage someone remotely because you can't see what they're doing. You have to trust, barring sticking a collar on somebody's ankle to find out if they're sitting at their desk or exactly where they are and try... You just can't do it right now. And so you're in this environment and element being forced in leadership to do a lot of these things. The universe is on my side here, right? Yes, absolutely. But but it's interesting because I have another Twitter friend who last week asked me if I would give him some feedback on a lot of organizations failed the first step. They basically laid people off with text messages and emails and didn't do anything thoughtfully. And so he's asking me for some feedback on this. And so this is sort of on my mind. He's written an article that's going to come out today or some, sometime soon. And what these companies don't realize is that those people aren't coming back. No. If, if they come back, they're going to come back without a ticker. They're going to come back without their heart in that work. They're going to be looking for something new. Now, we all need to meet our basic needs for food and water and shelter. So people will go back if they have to but that doesn't mean they're gonna stay. These organizations that are hoping that, hey, we just laid everybody off, and then you send out an email, hey guys, we're back open. There's a, there's a finger on my hand that they're gonna to show to these people that they're just gonna go, are you kidding me? 
you yeah. you left me for dead, and now you think I'm going to come back and give give everything to you. How we respond to fear is a big component of this. And so, if you're just singularly focused on your wealth and your company's well-being, I mean, I'm not naive. I know that you have to lay off some people if you, that's what you have to do to keep your company alive. But have the guts to say you matter to me and this kills me and I don't want to do this, but none of us are going to have a job to go back to if I don't. I hope you can understand why I'm doing this. And I want you to know that I know this is going to be a hardship for you. If you just have that conversation with people, people are not stupid. They get it. Yeah. They understand it. They're not going to be happy with anything of what I just said, but at least they go, he had the guts to say it to me personally. He explained why it needed to be done in a way that I understand it. And if that place opens up again, I want to go back to work for them. There's never been a better time for leaders to practice their skills of empathy and assertiveness in balance with each other than right now, which yes. are probably, in my opinion, the two most important skills a leader has. Totally agree with you. People can conflate that I'm the hard guy, so I don't believe in the assertiveness piece, which is mm -hmm. nonsense. You've got to be direct with people. You've got to be straight with people. You've got to give them the bad news when you have it. And, and that takes courage, you know, which ironically is heart. The word courage means heart. But you've got to be able to say, hey, this may go on for another six months, or we're only going to hire 20% of the people back, or, you know, I don't know when you're going to be able to come back to work, as opposed to, well, you know, I understand that this could get better in a matter of days, and we could all be back to work together. And you want to, like, give people hope and happiness, and I believe in hope, but not if it's not based on anything real. Give people the truth. That's a foundational element of trust as well. 100%, yeah. And obviously, another factor is the transparency that we now live in. And, you know, regardless of whether you're good or bad, it's going to come out. There's no getting back from it. There's no overcoming it. And then also the fact that we've all had to have this massive shift means we've had this realization that the sort of the framework that we live within that we thought has kept us in our lanes, has kept us motivated, has kept us in a certain direction. We realized that we don't need any of that framework anymore. And, and if the leaders don't recognize the shift they need to make, then people have already discovered that they can manage quite well, quite on their own. They can create their own ideas. They can be entrepreneurs. They can. Yeah, that interestingly has been the shift over the last five or six mm -hmm. years. So ignoring the, the mess that we're in right now, people said, you know what, I don't work. I don't want to work for anybody. I mean, I think we all tend to think that we're better managers than we are. Somebody else is the problem and we're, we're the good one. But all you need to do is ask people for one thing that you can do better. And if you've got 20 people working for you, you're going to get 20 punches in the stomach where you go, oh my God, is there anything good about what I do? But that's, a, that's how hard it is to manage the messiness of people. I've always believed that there was going to be this day where companies realized that this was the truth. And then all of a sudden, you, it's like a hurricane hits and you go, okay, is our car okay? Is the house okay? All the rooms there? You know, you start to do this assessment. If you come to this understanding that the way we've been managing people isn't going to work anymore, mm -hmm. you then go through the assessment and you go, Tom, is he on board? Mary, Susie, Ralph? No way Ralph's going to be on board here. He's been a jerk forever. So you put Ralph on, I'm making these names up, so I can't remember, but you get the idea that yeah. you start to put these people on warning that, hey, you're going to have to make a massive shift in the way you approach managing people because just because you get the numbers isn't going to work anymore.
Mm-hmm. And so that means we start to weed people out. We start to pull the people out who can't balance the mind and the heart. There is going to be one major transformation. We're just not going to forget all this. We're not going to just go back to work and pretend that none of this happened. That's not where we're at. I spoke on this. Um, they did a virtual HR conference in Africa. And so I did a 30-minute keynote with people that I couldn't even see. The whole time, I'm like outside of my body going, they're dealing with the same things we're dealing with here, 8,000 miles away. People are sequestered. People are fearful. People are wondering what work is going to be like. And all around the globe, people are going to be responding to the very same stimulus. I think that's like just amazing. Magnificent. We're all connected. So we could carry on talking about this for, for hours, I'm sure. But how can people find out more about you, Mark? How can they reach you? How can they connect with you? How can they learn more about what hardship leadership is going to be moving forward? Um, easiest answer is all roads lead to Rome. Leadfromtheheart.com. My name of the book is Lead From The Heart. The name of my podcast is Lead From The Heart. On Twitter, ironically, I'm Mark C. Crowley. Fantastic. Thank you. Well, look, I, well, we want to finish with the usual rapid-fire Q&A. Ten statements, two choices. Interpret it as suits you. Answer with your head, your heart, whatever it might be. Good stuff. Right. Number one, manager or leader? Leader. Number two, active or reactive? Active. Number three, black and white or gray? Gray. And number four, optimist or realist? Um, I think there's a false dichotomy there, but uh, (laughs) both. Good. Number five, Canada or England? Oh, that's that. I can't go there. <laughs> I, I have a I have I, I spoke in um, Canada last year and I spoke in England last year. So um, please don't make this is Sophie's choice. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, number seven, empathy or assertiveness. Uh, another big one. That's I, I'm going to lean into empathy right now. Okay. Number eight, introvert or extrovert. Extrovert, even though I'm an ambivert, I found out. I really like my introversion time, but right now it's time for extroversion. Mm. Yes, sir. Uh, number nine, logical or emotional? Um, I'm, I'm that head and mind guy, so, um, but I'm a feeling guy, so I'll go with emotional. And number 10, innovation or process? Innovation. Fantastic. Look, thank you so much for joining us today, Mark. We've really learned a lot about what hardship means, what it means to lead with the heart and what it might mean in the future. So a real honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being part of it. I loved it. It was really great meeting you. You guys are wonderful. So um, be safe, be well, and uh, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate being on with you. Thank you, Mark. We love to hear all of your feedback here on TNT ESQ. So if you've enjoyed this show, you've learned something, you've been inspired, please share it with your friends. Please rate the show. Please write a review on whichever podcast uh, platform you enjoyed it on to help us spread the word, help more people think differently and more people start doing differently. Thank you.